a pediatric lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the physician's lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Welcome to this, our third podcast with our co-host, Dr. George Rogo, and our host today, a good friend of the podcast and a personal friend of mine, Dr. Toback, who is currently a Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Novavax. He has worked in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology fields for the past 20 years, focusing on vaccines and therapeutics against respiratory viruses. Prior to that, he was a private practice pediatrician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, close to where he trained in the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He was also one of the partners at Pediatrics at Night. Hi, uh, George. Hi, Seth. How are you guys doing today? Hi, how are you? Super. Thanks, Herb. So Seth is a good friend of mine and a good friend of the podcast. I won't dare say how many years I've known him. (laughs) How is Sophia doing at Georgetown? She's doing awesome. We successfully got one out of the house. We got one to go, and we're working hard every day to, to keep them there. <laughs> Your wife, is she still up doing her PhD psychology coaching for high-degree executives, or has she moved on from that? No, she's still an executive coach. Uh, she only uses her, her PhD in psychology for the people that are both uh, a little bit crazy and needing some coaching. But yeah, she's doing excellent. Her, her business is good. There's lots of people out there, especially post-pandemic, needing some help in, in their executive management skills. Oh, well. Walk us a little bit through your journey in pediatrics. I know you started uh, very interesting. Your dad was a dermatologist or is a dermatologist still practicing in Rhode Island? Yeah, he won't give it up. So yeah, <laughs> yeah still, still practicing. And then you went to Canada for undergrad. Yeah, I think the astute viewers will see that actually it's my uh, McGill diploma over my, my left shoulder here. I think my trip into medicine probably was not too different than, than most of the people out there. You know, I had an interest in science and in high school. I, I chose to go to McGill mostly because it was relatively close to where I lived in New England, up in Quebec. You know, it, was, it had a great, great pre-med program. I had some great experiences there and went back to the U.S. for medical school at Tufts mostly because I didn't apply to McGill because my French wasn't good enough to go to medical school there. I had a couple of good years at, at, at Tufts and I think the, you know, just fell in love with pediatrics. It was the, 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 you know, my favorite rotation. I liked the work. I had some great mentors some very smart pediatricians, some very academically minded pediatricians. And I thought, you know, this is a career I could go into. And so um, that was kind of my journey into, into medicine. And that's where you cross path with Todd? I crossed paths with, with, with Todd after my residency. So I did my residency at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. I basically left Boston seeking a place where, where I could afford to live as a resident. Uh, and I knew that New York and Boston and anything on the West Coast was off the list. So, so Pittsburgh was a great choice. Wonderful program. When I left, I, I joined a, a group practice in, in Pittsburgh and Todd was one of the, the sites. So was that a larger group practice without walls or was that just one practice owned by the same person with different offices? No, it was an alliance of about seven or eight offices. And there were initially individual offices and they came together under one scope to combine resources and management uh, and and then buying power for, for vaccines and such. I've said this before, I think if I had joined Todd's office from day one, I'd probably still be in Pittsburgh today because it was he was such an innovative kind of person. I know we're going to get into this, but one of the reasons I, I left pediatrics 
was the lack of innovation in my particular office. And then at some point you moved into the neighborhood here in uh, Virginia and worked with me at Pediatrics at Night. Yeah. So uh, that was basically, you know, I worked in an office for, and it was a partner um, in an office for, for about seven years in Pittsburgh. At one point, my wife and I just said, you know, we need a little more support with, with the kids. And so we decided to either move closer to her, my family or her family and her family won. We left Pennsylvania. We moved to Virginia a little closer to her family. And that's when I got another job working in primary care. And at that time, I had a strong interest in urgent care. In fact, I had actually gotten board certified in urgent care medicine. And that's why I met you. And, and I was actually on the fence. Do I want to try and start my own urgent care, go back to primary care? Would I join an urgent care? So I had a lot of options on the table. And that's when we met. So then I burned you out and you went and got a <laughs> master's degree <laughs> and left the industry. So how did you come about choosing? Because George is MBA, but you have an MMM. And I'm not quite sure what the difference between the degrees are and how you came about other than I burned you out, going on to get that master's degree. Sure. And maybe, maybe, maybe George can, can, can give some comments, but I can tell you, I joined the American College of Physician Executives. And I did some work with them, some of their individual classes, and they are, you know, they're strong backers of some of the, the MBA or other programs. So one of the programs that they educate about and push is the Masters of Medical Management. It's only done in a couple of locations, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I think uh, there's one on the West Coast. I think there's one uh, in, in Louisiana. And they all talk about some of the executive MBAs, uh, one being at, at UMass. At the time, I was still in Pennsylvania and Carnegie Mellon was in my backyard. So it was really a, a, good, a good match. They also sold me on the fact they said the, the MMM is basically the MBA for doctors. It's a prerequisite to be an MD for the MMM. And there's, because of that, there's less finance and there's less accounting. And I said, well, that's for me. Uh, and anytime I, I can skip on accounting, that was better. So I don't know, George, maybe you have some, some different thoughts on, on the MBA versus the MMM. I did a similar path as you did also with the certified physician executive program, which is called AAPL now. I did that because initially I was interested in the business of medicine. I'm mm. pretty good at the private practice end. So I needed something extra. You couldn't get into anything else if you don't have a master's of some sort. A lot of people tried to discourage me <clears throat> and tell me, well, why do you need it? You've already done it. So somebody told me about the Certified Physician Executive Program. It was great because it was all CME credits. So I had so many CMEs after doing that. And those credits then transferred to the MBA program at the UMass Amherst, which is probably the same thing that you did. All your credits yeah. from there, the prerequisites, went to your master's program. And then you just completed the program later at your leisure, you know, it was, no stress. It was a great network yeah. opportunity too. some really interesting physicians at those meetings. Yeah, I met a lot of good doctors there. I would think that the majority of the doctors I met that, that followed the, the MMM path were advancing their way of academic medicine. You know, you saw a lot of department heads, head of radiology, head of right. orthopedics. The MBA is probably a bit more flexible. So in, I think in retrospect, MBA is also more recognizable. I, I often get people say, what is this MMM? Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was great. And I think it did help me with my transition from practice into industry. I, I picked up a couple of good skills. So the first industry I remember that you went into, I think it was a company called Metamune, which has now been sold. Is that right? 
Metamune was was acquired by AstraZeneca, I think in like 2007, 2006. Uh, they were pretty hands-off for, for multiple years, kept the name, kept the logo, but but now they've kind of completely integrated Metamune uh, into their, their vaccines. That was actually a really easy start for me. Uh, yes, I started at a company that had a lot of pediatricians because at the time they had two products. They had the Synergist, which, you know, is for, for premature babies. So lots of pediatricians, lots of like-minded doctors there. And Flumis, and even though Flumis was indicated up to age 49, most of its use was, was in pediatrics. And, you know, the, the many years I spent in practice, especially working with the section of practice management, I had a lot of the skills and knowledge they needed for that work, which is how do physicians order the vaccine? How do they utilize the vaccine? Do they want to order all of them at once? Uh, do they need to order multiple different brands uh, and different different ones for, for different age groups? You know, those under under two and the half dose and the, the full dose. And, and so they had a lot of these logistical practice management questions, and I was able to address those. And I think it really helped me uh, get my, my very first job in industry. I am sure a lot of people don't understand this MMH and MBA stuff. I mean, you left pediatric medicine and you went to the industry. What is it that you do there? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a couple of the, the, the big terms people don't understand. I might just clarify some of those. When you work in industry as a physician, there's probably a couple of big categories you can work in. You can work in R&D. So if you're a research scientist, PhD, but obviously I'm not that. I don't, you know, I don't create vaccines. You can work in clinical development. And that's actually very common for, for medical doctors. Clinical development takes uh, a new product that is, was made by R&D and puts it into your phase one, phase two, phase three trials to make sure the product or the vaccine is safe and efficacious. And then once it gets approved by a regulatory body like the FDA, it gets handed off to medical affairs. Medical affairs is then the kind of the, the ambassador of that product in the post-approval world. They work on post-licensure studies, very large safety studies, very large efficacy and effectiveness trials. <clears throat> but also medical affairs does a ton of other things. They work with advocacy groups. They work with physicians. They, they work on the, on the field-based medicine. They do lots of things, publications, conferences. So that's, that's the area that I work in now. And I like it because it's, it's probably the, the most dynamic. And we touch so many different aspects of the, of the company. So, and so for Matty, me and you went to Gilead to work on RSV. Yeah, I had a chance to move out to the, the West Coast. And this is when I actually moved from medical affairs to clinical development. I had to acquire some new skills. I had to learn a little bit about phase one. I had to buff up on my epidemiology and statistics skills. But there we were working on a, uh, a fusion inhibitor for RSV. All the pediatricians listening to this will know that RSV is the holy grail for, for, for pediatrics. They've been working on a vaccine forever for you know, multiple companies. Gilead you know, has a long history in antivirals, working with HIV, of course, and then and Hep C, and they had a really nice fusion inhibitor. Unfortunately, it only worked if you gave it within six hours of being sick. As you know, that's just impossible. Yeah, so, so it worked very well in a kind of artificial environment, but in reality, you know, your, your kids are you're sick two, three days before they come in with their symptoms. And at that point, the viral load's already up here. The symptoms are already in place and it just, it just didn't work. But uh, it was some great experience and some, some great uh, knowledge gain. Then you did a short stint in uh, France with uh, diagnostics <laughs> and came back to where you had started in Gaithersburg. Now you're working in other vaccines. Is that right? I had a chance to move full circle. I started in vaccines with, with Flumest. I'm now working on, on COVID-19 vaccines at Novavax. For me, I was particularly excited because 
you know, it's very unusual to have the entire nightly news discuss one topic, the topic that you're working on. It's like, imagine if the entire newscast from, from, from five o'clock to 10 o'clock was all about Titus Media. Well, the pediatricians would be like, woohoo. Uh, so for me, it was very exciting to work in an area that the entire globe was talking about. So it was a lot of energy and uh, a lot of excitement. So I, I have two very scientific questions. Mm-hmm. One is, how come the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccines don't seem to matter what the product is, only seems to be effective for six months, and then it drops off? Why, can't, why haven't we been able to change that? I think this probably is a complicated question. I mean, one, we know antibodies always drop. So you can't get any uh, disease where you get antibodies that, that don't drop off after time. Antibodies are supposed to drop off. You don't want to have tetanus antibodies circulating in your bloodstream forever. What you want is memory B cells that hang around. So we do know that the tires will, will drop. But we also do know that a lot of these studies, and this is artificial, just the, the way the studies were done. These studies were done as what we call event-driven trials, which basically means as soon as they got enough cases, they did a data freeze and they assessed the efficacy. So they did the efficacy at, at two, three months after, after vaccination. And then they did it a little bit while later, whereas flu vaccines typically done at the end of the season. They start vaccinating in, in September, October, and they cut the trial and they look at the data in April or May. So the, so vaccine trials by flu are typically done at 8, 10, 12 months. So what happens is if you do a study and you do your first data cut only a couple of months after you vaccinate, your vaccine efficacy are quite high. And then if you do it again, you know, six months later, it drops down. If you do it many months later, it's going to drop down some more. I think that's natural. I think you'd see that in almost any vaccine. But the question would be, is, is how low is too low? And do you need to, to boost every year? And I think that's not universally agreed upon yet by the experts. The other one just fascinates me. I remember all the arguments and controversy when the varicella vaccine came out. And it all really, um, you know, went around, do we really need to vaccinate kids against chickenpox? Most of them do fairly well. But it's a safe and effective vaccine. Then they did the cost analysis or the return on investment, as you guys would say. They showed that vaccinating would actually save dollars that would be spent at the back end. It was a cost-effective vaccine. However, we didn't do that with a COVID vaccine. Why? Yeah, the health economics didn't play much of a role for a couple of reasons. Uh, Probably number one is that the vaccines were being purchased by governments. And governments were actually at that phase that we were in a sheer panic state. If you look at what the some of the, the initial countries did, is they bought sometimes three to four times the number of vaccines needed to vaccinate their entire populations. And they bought it from different manufacturers. And so basically money was not an issue. I mean, they, they were in a panic state and they were like, we will buy all the vaccine to cover our, our country fourfold. And I don't know how there was any, any kind of agreed upon price that was done by, by the business folks. No health economics came into it. Now, when we shift from the payer going from a country to individuals like Blue Cross Blue Shield or individual payers, that's when, when we're going to start seeing the rubber hit the road and people start saying, okay, show me your data, show me your, your safety and efficacy, and we'll pick a price point and we'll, and we'll, and we'll see if your price point uh, is backed up by, by your data. That's when the health economics will come into play. And I thought the other thing is the fact that we were just rushing. I remember two years ago, people were, were in complete panic. They didn't want to sit there and say, well, I'll tell you what, we can do this study in two months and get you some efficacy data, or we can do it in six months and throw in some health economics. What do you think? 
And the answer was, we want the data as soon as we can get it, and we want it now. And so it just wasn't done. Well, that makes sense. Then I always ask this of the people that are kind enough to come and be with us. What book are you reading now? I know you don't read. You're like George. You listen to books on tape. I'm... So what are you listening to nowadays? Well, you know, I used to listen to books on tape when I drove, but now I don't drive. So now actually I do read. I read real books with paper and everything. I usually, I go into my wife's library and I go into the, the, the management ones and I pull out something interesting. The one I'm reading now is called The Corporate Athlete. It's an oldie but goodie. I think it was written in the, the 80s or 90s. And it really is, it's about, you know, balancing the mind-body balance to, to make sure that you're physically fit, that you have the mental endurance, the physical endurance to do your job well. Uh, it's a little bit dated, but I find it, it helpful because, you know, right now, working long hours is really like being in a marathon. And I think that the connection between your, your body and mind during this pandemic has probably been more important than any other time. You, you cannot just sit there and work long hours and, and then sit down on the, on the couch and, and eat potato chips. You really need to keep your body up. For me, it's been a great book. I have a question for you, Seth. Yeah. I wanted to know, and I'm sure a lot of people want to know, are you happy that you made the move from practice to the industry? Yeah, I am happy. I, I love being a pediatrician. I think it was the only job I was really, really good at. I love seeing the families. I love seeing the kids. I love seeing the hard, you know, hard cases. I'd see a case and I'm like, oh, you know, persistent headaches. And I would love trying to figure out the, the mystery of what was going on and then watching the, the, the kids grow up. But there was a lot of things that were frustrating. The, the insurance companies, the long hours, spending my entire lunchtime on the phone answering questions and, and never eating. Unfortunately, I had some, some partners that just weren't very innovative. You know, they were just happy to see the 30, 40 kids a day. I had these great ideas. I wanted to extend hours. I wanted to hire efficient extenders and, and do more, as Herb knows, for uh, urgent care. You know, do splints and, and crutches and ankle slings and splints. And I just wasn't getting any satisfaction. So I really wanted to move into an area that was more academic. I, I love to write articles. I, in fact, I wrote, you know, my first four articles were just case studies I saw in my office. And I love to, to give presentations and speak. Right. And now I actually get paid for reading articles, making PowerPoints, giving presentations. So I, I think it was very, very good for me. And I love the, the academic um, atmosphere. I've seen that. What you, what you commented with working with other people, I've seen that over and over, which is the reason practices fall apart. They don't let the younger guy advance and do things. And I think that's the, the, the breeder of physician burnout. I can believe that. I wasn't asking for anything crazy. I was asking, let's think about a satellite. Let's look at some demographics. Let's expand. What can we do that's fee for service? You know, that at the point people were selling, you know, breast pump equipment and they were doing right. uh, generic antibiotics and, and things like that. And these are all fee for service, relatively easy things to accomplish. I just got no, 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 and no. And I no, said, no, you know what? I, I need to I need to innovate. I really need to, to keep my, my enthusiasm up or I'm going to get bored. Yeah, the, the statement that you'll get is, we've always done it this way, so why should we change? Yes. That's mm -hmm. the most toxic words in medicine. Yes, the most toxic word in medicine. We've always done it this way, so why should we change? Oh, followed, by, followed by, show me the data. Well, I can't show you the data uh -huh. till we try it. Yeah. So it's a sad story that you, you ended up like that. Now, was that practice still in practice? 
Yeah, they're still in practice. Yeah, and actually, sure. you, know, you know, and Dr. Bravo, I did show them the data. I showed them demographics about where I wanted to place the satellite. I showed them declining numbers uh, of, of newborns that we're having year over year. You know, when you don't have enough newborns, your, your practice dies. I mean, it's basically newborns of the lifeblood. There's so, simple things that you learn at the master's and the MBA classes. Yeah, simple exactly. 101 things. Yeah. Wow. Terrible. Who would you like us to host? Uh, I think I mentioned this on LinkedIn. One of my previous partners in Pittsburgh is a good friend of mine, Dr. Todd Willen. Oh, he's um, coming. Yeah, he's he coming. is. He's a great guy. He's developed an expert niche in vaccine hesitancy, yeah. and he's got a wonderful story to tell. You got to ask him about how he got into that because he's got a great story to tell how, how he took on the, the, the world of the, the anti-vaxxers and then just yeah. kind of jumped into it with, with both feet. And he's a great storyteller. Yeah, he's already uh, confirmed. And we're going to just set a date with him. He gave me his secretary to reach out to. <laughs> Super. That, that's great. What do you think of our podcast? Do you have any suggestions for our pediatricians and other doctors that are listening? You should de- continue to, to talk about the, the things that are not talked about. You know, the reimbursement issues, the quality of life issues, the burnout issues. We can talk about taste media all you want. That gets boring. I would let people know about the options for working for industry. Because, you know, initially when, when I joined 20 years ago, I got a lot of, you know, slack or you're, you're joining the dark side or you're, you know, you're doing the evil work. I was selling flu vaccines and doing it from the inside and trying to tell them how a pediatrician thinks to make sure that we could protect more kids. And at the time, Flumas had great data. So I thought, you know, here I am protecting more kids probably saving more lives than I was doing it one kid at a time. So I think it's important to let residents know that this is an, an option where you're working for a company, making vaccines or other, other things is not evil work. You're doing the, the, the work that needs to be done. The vaccines and products save lives. And sure, there's always a dark side. You know, is there over-marketing in some areas and some bad side? Yeah, sure. But if you hire high quality, you know, ethical pediatricians to do the work, you're going to get high quality output of that work. I think people should, should know that's an option. I tell you from practice this past year through the COVID, the flu vaccine rates have decreased dramatically. I couldn't even give it away at one point. Yeah. Fast forward to this past couple of months. Do you know what the number one positive test I have? Flu, positive, Hello. influenza. It's yeah. like seven, eight to 10 a day. Yeah, nobody cares. Yeah. Um, it blows your mind. Yeah. I guess next year there's going to be an uptick in the flu because this year we had so many flu cases. Yeah. We need a better flu vaccine. That's, that's you know, another, another holy grail out there about better flu vaccine. Better yeah. flu vaccine, better administration of the flu vaccine, better distribution of the flu vaccine, better embracing of the flu vaccine. People dismiss mm-hmm. the flu vaccine as not important. I remember I'm of the generation that worked before the flu vaccine. I used to see so much flu, so many secondary infections. I used to go home just choking. It was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this the rest of my life? Flu vaccine was dropped down to six months. It was like illness disappeared. Throwing the Prevnar into the mix, there's no more ear infections. Gone. Chicken pox. He said, what's the big deal with chicken pox? You know what? I was a generation that actually saw the secondary effects of chicken pox illness in the hospital. Cerebellitis, secondary infections, they're not good. They're not good. So Seth, without predicting the future, do you think we will get a better uh, flu uh, vaccine at some point in an RSV vaccine or are those too far off the radar? 
You know, some of the flu vaccines out there right now are better. There's a high dose. There, there are adjuvanted and there are recombinant flu vaccines. My company is working on a better influenza vaccine that is both recombinant and adjuvanted. We have the, the high hopes for, for a better flu vaccine. RSV, I can tell you that we've been working on since the 1960s. And there are a couple of players out there that are pretty far along. So I think we'll be seeing something pretty soon. You know, there's also that, that long-acting monoclonal antibody that was actually created by, by MedImmune is now being licensed through Sanofi that acts a lot like a vaccine. It's basically like a long-acting synergist and they're going to treat it like a, a vaccine. So that has some, some high hopes. I think we, we will see great strides in, in, in both RSV and flu in the next you know, two to three years. Well, do you have any more questions, George? I think we're good. Well, thank you, Seth, so much for coming on uh, our podcast. Nice to meet you in person, finally. Yes, no, it's great to meet you guys and, and great to see uh, people talking about these, these kind of cool topics in, in, in pediatrics that I think it needs to be done. Okay, cool. Okay, see you all guys soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week, the Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guests.